Hey team, quick change of plans for me today. I had a totally different episode planned for this week, but something interesting came up that I just had to talk about. If you've been in neuromonitoring for a while, you've probably heard rumors about private neuromonitoring companies participating in business deals with surgeons in order to, well, secure their business. In these deals, surgeons profit off of neuromonitoring they use, and people question whether these deals are legal or even ethical. I'm jumping into this radioactive topic headfirst today. I'm Rich Vogel, and this is Stimulating Stuff. Let's go! Hey yo! Welcome back to the Stimulating Stuff Podcast. I'm Rich Vogel, and the struggle is real, my friends. I was getting ready to release a new episode featuring friends from Abret who discuss the new neuromonitoring credential that's coming out. But something popped up, and I gotta push that episode to next week. Ah, the suspense. More on that later. Well, I hope you weren't sleeping this week, because as Nas said, sleep is the cousin of death, and you're probably missing out on all the buzz. That's right. I said buzz. The neuromonitoring community has been buzzing this last week because something very interesting happened. On Friday, August 18th, the Office of the Inspector General issued an advisory opinion on certain business practices in neuromonitoring, deeming them, quote, unfavorable and suggesting that these business practices may be violations of federal law. If none of this makes sense to you, if you don't see how this impacts you, or if you've heard rumors about these business relationships but never really understood them, don't you worry. Uncle Rico is here to break it all down. I know you like that Napoleon Dynamite reference. Before we jump into the details of this, I want to give you all some background so everybody's starting on the same page. I mentioned the Office of the Inspector General, or the OIG for short. This simply refers to oversight division of any given federal or state agency. And this division endeavors to identify, audit, and investigate things like fraud, waste, abuse, embezzlement, and mismanagement of any kind related to the parent agency. All major departments within the U.S. government have their own OIG, or Office of the Inspector General. The one that we're talking about today is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, which is a government agency that oversees health in the United States. And this includes federal health care programs like Medicare and Medicaid. So when I refer to the OIG in this episode, I'm talking about the folks who investigate criminal activity for the Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS. These folks develop and distribute resources to assist the healthcare industry in its efforts to comply with the nation's fraud and abuse laws and to educate the public about fraudulent schemes so that it can protect itself and report suspicious activities. One example of a resource they may develop and distribute is an advisor opinion when someone submits a question about whether or not some particular situation may be considered a violation of federal law. That's what happened with neuromonitoring, and we're going to talk about it. More background. The OIG of the HHS is the largest inspector general's office in the federal government with over 1,600 employed personnel. 
the majority of the agency's resources go towards oversight of Medicare and Medicaid, programs that represent a significant part of the federal budget coming from taxpayers. And these programs affect this country's most vulnerable citizens. The special agents who work for the OIG are very similar to FBI agents, but they have special skills in investigating white-collar crime related to Medicare and Medicaid fraud and abuse. The OIG has prosecuted individuals, corporations, hospitals, and healthcare systems for violations of Stark Law and anti-kickback statutes, which we'll talk about, pertaining to physician compensation arrangements. In 2022 alone, they recovered nearly $3 billion in funds related to fraud and abuse in healthcare. They criminally prosecuted over 700 individuals or entities from crimes against health and human services programs, and they excluded nearly 2,500 individuals and entities from participating in these programs, which means that they can't bill Medicare or Medicaid, and that's just where the problems begin. That's a really big deal. So in other words, the OIG is not to be fucked with. With this in mind, I'll repeat what I said before. Just over a week ago, the OIG issued an advisory opinion on certain business practices and neuromonitoring, deeming them unfavorable and suggesting that these business practices may be violations of federal law. Today, I'm going to talk about this advisory opinion, what it means, what the implications are, and how this may impact the average person working in neuromonitoring. So let's jump in. A few minutes ago, I mentioned that the OIG develops and distributes advisory opinions when someone submits a question about whether or not a particular situation may be considered a violation of federal law. Well, somebody submitted a question about neuromonitoring. They spelled out the, quote, questionable business relationship in exquisite detail, and the OIG hit the reply all button essentially sharing their opinion with the public. Before we get into the findings and my commentary, I want to walk you through the type of relationship that is at the center of this opinion. And by the way, it's been at the center of controversy and neuromonitoring for over a decade. So in the typical world of outsourced neuromonitoring, a technical services company who employs neuromonitorists contracts with various hospitals under a neuromonitoring services agreement. And the contract basically states that they will, one, perform the technical component of neuromonitoring for surgeries at those hospitals through its employed neuromonitorists. And two, they'll generally arrange for the performance of the professional component of neuromonitoring for the same surgeries through neurologists who are often either independent contractors or employees of a separate physician practice that has a management services agreement with the neuromonitoring company. In this episode, just for clarity, I'm going to refer to this as a neurology practice, but just keep in mind that it could be just one person who's an independent contractor, or it could be a whole group of neurologists. So when surgeons want to schedule neuromonitoring services for one of their procedures at the hospital, they, or 
somebody who works for them generally reach out to a neuromonitoring company to schedule the case. The neuromonitoring company then schedules one of its neuromonitorists to perform the technical component of the surgery. And then they contact the neurology practice to arrange for them to assign a neurologist to perform the professional component for the surgery. Neurologist assignment is simply based on who's licensed in the state and privileged in the facility where the surgery is taking place. And it also takes into account just general availability, making sure the person's not on PTO, for example. Generally speaking, when the surgery is complete, the neuromonitoring company bills the hospital for the technical component and the neurology practice bills the insurance company or the patient for the professional component. That's how neuromonitoring generally works in the outsource setting. And the OIG made it clear that they were not asked to give an opinion on and they expressed no opinion regarding these particular details, including the individuals and organizations involved. What they did give an opinion on is a specific business arrangement for how this could all work, essentially behind the scenes. Under that arrangement, the neuromonitoring company offers to assist surgeons who use neuromonitoring with the formation and operation of a new separate company, what they call a turnkey entity that would perform neuromonitoring services and that would be owned by the surgeon or surgeons. So I'm going to call this new organization Company X. So in the scenario that I'm about to talk about, neither the neuromonitoring company nor the neurology practice would have any equity or ownership interest in company X. The surgeon owners would be responsible for forming company X and for preparing its internal governance documents. In reality, mm, I'm sure all of this is done or at least guided by the neuromonitoring company's lawyers. So the surgeon owners ultimately would set the terms of their respective investment interests in company X and the methodology for the distribution of the company's profits amongst themselves. Therefore, the surgeon owners would likely receive distributions from company X's profits in return for their investments in company X. After Company X is formed at the suggestion of and with the assistance of the Neuromonitoring Technical Services Company, surgeon owners would have limited participation or probably no participation in its day-to-day business operations. Instead, they would contract with the Neuromonitoring Company and the Neurology Practice for performance of the necessary services. Several different contracts are established to make this work. First, there's a billing services agreement established between the neuromonitoring company and Company X. In this agreement, the neuromonitoring company would provide to Company X certain administrative services, such as billing and collections, in exchange for a fee from Company X. Second, there's a management services agreement between the neuromonitoring company and the neurology practice. In this agreement, the neurology practice would lease neuromonitorists from the neuromonitoring company to provide neuromonitoring to the surgeons. 
And then third, there's a personal services agreement between the neurology practice and company X. In this agreement, the neurology practice would provide to company X the services of its neurologists and the least neuromonitorists in exchange for a fee from company X. The services provided by the neuromonitoring company and the neurology practice under these contracts would constitute virtually all of the day-to-day requirements for a neuromonitoring business. So company X, the surgeon-owned entity, would not need to hire any dedicated employees because the neuromonitoring company and the neurology practice would provide all necessary services for company X, which is essentially a shell. So, Company X, the shell company, contracts with hospitals under a services agreement that would essentially govern the provision of technical and professional components of neuromonitoring for surgeries at that hospital. Generally, Company X would bill the hospital for the technical component and would bill the insurance company and or the patient for the professional component. Although Company X is billing would be handled by the neuromonitoring company under the billing services agreement, the neuromonitoring company would take direction from the surgeon owners regarding the amounts to be billed for the services. So in theory, the more surgeries they monitor and the more money they bill for each procedure, the more money the surgeons make. Neuromonitoring companies get into these agreements for competitive reasons because their surgeon clients are continually approached by other neuromonitoring companies that are encouraging the surgeons to enter into similar arrangements. And the neuromonitoring company just wants to retain business from its surgeon clients that otherwise would be lost to these competing neuromonitoring companies. At least that's what it says in the OIG report. Of course, some create these relationships with surgeons in order to get new business and take it from companies who aren't engaging in these services. So while company X would pay a fee to the neuromonitoring company under the billing services agreement and would pay a fee to the neurology practice under a personal services agreement, company X would likely see substantial profits from the proposed arrangement. The profits come from the difference between fees paid to the neuromonitoring company and neurology practice and the reimbursement received from third parties like insurance companies. And while company X, owned by surgeons, is raking in the money, The thought here is that the neuromonitoring company and the neurology practice would earn substantially less profits under this agreement than they otherwise would under a standard business model. This is primarily because, first, reimbursement for the professional component of neuromonitoring can far exceed the cost of providing the service, and two, the neurology practice would charge company X less than it would otherwise make by billing insurance for the same service. And they have to charge less because other competing neuromonitoring companies marketing similar arrangements to surgeons have aggressively discounted their charges for such services. Okay, I know this is a lot of information, so let me break this down even more simply. For all intents and purposes, Company X is a surgeon-owned shell company. 
It receives money from hospitals and insurance companies, and it pays out a portion of the money to the neuromonitoring company and neurology practice for doing what they already do, cover cases and bill for them. Whatever money's left over, the surgeons get to keep. So while the neuromonitoring company, the neurology practice, would make far more money doing what they already do by billing the hospital insurance company directly, they make less money because the shell company owned by the surgeons is taking a piece of the pie. And they do this just so they can keep the surgeon as a client. It may seem odd to give away money to keep clients, but if you do this at scale, working with far more surgeons than you would if you weren't giving them a piece of the profit, then you can make up your losses in volume and actually make good money. So here's where it gets interesting. Under the arrangement I just described, when neuromonitoring is needed, the surgeon would essentially refer any Medicare or Medicaid patients to the neuromonitoring company in which they have no ownership. And all of their patients who have commercial insurance would be referred to company X. So if the patient has Medicare, the insurance payment flows through the neuromonitoring company and or the neurology practice. But if the patient has private insurance, say Blue Cross, for example, then the money flows through company X, which is owned by the surgeon or surgeons. Isn't that interesting? I wonder why company X, the company that surgeons profit from, deals exclusively with private insurance, and why federal insurance, in other words, taxpayer money, is carved out and sent to a different company that the surgeon doesn't profit from. I'll tell you why after a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by the Neuropod. The Neuropod is a podcast for the neurodiagnostic community hosted by Jason Mayer. I'm a big fan of the Neuropod. And I'm a big fan of Jason. I strongly recommend checking it out. Jason, take it away. Thanks, Rich. We love your podcast and we appreciate the opportunity to sponsor an episode. If you like stimulating stuff as much as we do, you're going to love the Neuropod, the podcast for neurodiagnostic professionals. You know, not everyone has the opportunity to develop professionally in an environment rich with resources, physician involvement, and great leadership. In some labs, technologists can feel as if they're all alone on an island with no mentorship or anyone who even understands what they do. You are absolutely not alone. There are so many resources available to neurodiagnostic techs. You just have to know where to go to find them. In comes the Neuropod. Our mission is to provide you with information that can help you provide better care for your patients. Knowledge is power and more knowledge can lead to better patient outcomes. Each episode features a different subject matter expert from the neurodiagnostic community. These insightful interviews will help guide you through your professional journey. Invest in yourself. Go to your favorite podcast service and download or stream the Neuropod today. And if you have topics you'd like more information on, drop us an email at topics at neurosciencedvisors.com. And we're back. So before the break, we were talking about why Company X, the one that surgeons profit from, deals exclusively with private commercial insurance, and why federal insurance, taxpayer money, is carved out and sent to a different company that the surgeon doesn't profit from. Well, I don't want to deal in speculation as to why people are doing this. Instead, 
Let's just go and see what the OIG said about this particular business arrangement. The first point that they make is that the arrangement would implicate the federal anti-kickback statute. If you haven't taken your compliance courses in a while, the anti-kickback statute is a federal law that imposes criminal and civil penalties on those that knowingly and willfully offer, solicit, receive, or pay any form of payment in exchange for the referral of services or products covered by any federal health care program. In other words, the referral of a Medicare patient for neuromonitoring. The statute covers both those that provide or offer kickbacks and those that receive or solicit kickbacks. So as it relates to the arrangement that we just discussed, the OIG says that this arrangement looks and smells like a kickback because surgeons receive something of value when they use neuromonitoring. And the examples that they give include one, discounts under the personal services agreement provided by the neurology practice to company X. Two, the opportunity for company X to generate a profit through the difference between the money it receives from insurance reimbursements and the fees paid by company X to both the neuromonitoring company and the neurology practice under the services agreement. And three, returns on investment interests in company X to the surgeon owners. While the anti-kickback statute technically applies only to patients with federal insurance, and while the surgeons are only using this arrangement for private insurance, the OIG believes these benefits could induce the surgeons to make referrals of neuromonitoring services for which payment could be made by a federal health care program. In other words, some Medicare and Medicaid patients could have their insurance billed by company X, which, whether accidental or purposeful, would still be considered illegal. They go on to say that the arrangement sets the stage for, quote, significant risk of fraud and abuse. So based on the relevant facts that were submitted to the OIG, they concluded that the arrangement, if undertaken, would generate prohibited benefit to surgeons under the federal anti-kickback statute, which would constitute grounds for the imposition of sanctions. What's interesting to me is how often the OIG uses the words could and potential in talking about fraud and abuse. In particular, they make it sound like it's illegal to do something that could result in fraud and abuse, even if you're not committing fraud and abuse for a federal health care program. Now, I'm obviously not a lawyer, and I don't know for sure what they're trying to communicate using such equivocal language, but I'd love to hear the perspectives of any lawyers who happen to be listening. What's also interesting to me is the part about the carve-out. The OIG says they have long-standing and continuing concerns about arrangements under which parties carve out federal health care program beneficiaries or federal health care program business from otherwise questionable financial arrangements. It sounds to me like they have concerns but can't do much about it except perhaps send it to a different investigative agency like the FBI. Anyway, the OIG advisory opinion ends with a bunch of caveats, 
Of particular interest to me is the fact that the person who submitted this inquiry to the OIG only asked about violation of the federal anti-kickback statute. So the OIG only commented on this statute. They did not analyze this agreement against any other federal, state, or local laws, including the Stark Law, which prohibits physician self-referral. So let's talk about that for a second. The Stark Law says that a physician can't request an item or service for a Medicare or Medicaid patient if the physician or immediate family member has a financial relationship with that entity. They also can't refer a patient to an entity for health services if the physician or immediate family member has a financial relationship with that entity. The main goal is to reduce the temptation of over-treating patients simply because it serves a practitioner's financial interest. Think of a surgeon who orders neuromonitoring on every patient for every surgery, regardless of risk to the nervous system, only because they have an ownership interest in the neuromonitoring and they make a profit off of it. This is considered illegal because overutilization of services drives up healthcare costs and it limits competition. Critics of the Stark Law argue that physicians who own, invest in, or operate medical companies, products, services, and facilities are only responding to a need for medical services which would otherwise not be met, particularly in medically underserved areas. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but when I read the arrangement described in the OIG's advisory opinion and I read the Stark Law, I don't see a difference. I'm sure there are nuances, and I can think of a few, but high level, the surgeon owns company X and uses it exclusively for neuromonitoring by his or her own choice. Seems like self-referral to me. Here's another thing I find really interesting. The federal Stark law was actually derived from a New Jersey state law, and neuromonitoring is intertwined. So let's go back. In 1991, A New Jersey senator by the name of Richard Cody introduced legislation prohibiting physicians from making referrals to health care services in which they held ownership interests. The New Jersey Cody Law eventually was modified by U.S. Congressman Pete Stark, who pushed for prohibitions against physician self-referrals of Medicare and Medicaid patients, now called the Stark Law. So now we have a federal law against physician self-referral, at least as it relates to Medicare, Medicaid, and other federal health care programs. Let's go back to New Jersey. So in the state of New Jersey, like most states, the practice of medicine is governed by both federal and state law. Federal law comes into play when you take or accept Medicare or Medicaid-related insurance plans. When that happens, it doesn't matter what state you're in, the laws of the federal government are going to take precedent. However, if you are taking private or even some state-funded plans, then the New Jersey laws and regulations will govern you or the state in which the patient is having surgery. So this is important, and I bring up New Jersey in particular because in 2015, in New Jersey, the very birthplace of the Stark Law, the original Cody law was actually altered to allow surgeons to self-refer specifically 
to neuromonitoring companies in which they have ownership interests or otherwise profit from. In other words, as long as you're not involving Medicare or Medicaid, it's legal in New Jersey. So at the time the bill was introduced, it was argued that neurosurgeons needed their own neuromonitorists for the most dangerous of neurologic surgeries because there was a shortage of qualified personnel. Not only is that genuine horseshit, frankly, because some of the best neuromonitorists in the country live and work in the tri-state region, but I'm willing to bet if you look under the hood today, you'll find that surgeon-owned neuromonitorists are being used for routine surgeries of comparatively low risk than what the amended Cody Law was designed to accommodate. Case in point, several years ago, I met an attorney who drafted the Cody Law Amendment at a risk management conference, and having kept his ear to the ground, he expressed regret for what had come of what he originally believed to be a noble effort. Moving away from New Jersey for a second, when it comes to Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute, the ASNM actually understood there to be significant risk years ago. In 2018, they published a position statement on business practices and neuromonitoring. It says, and I'm going to read this here for you, it is the position of the ASNM that business practices related to the provision of neuromonitoring should be performed in accordance with the AMA Code of Medical Ethics. By extension, it is the position of the ASNM that the existence of certain financial relationships, i.e. kickbacks or self-referrals, between a neuromonitoring provider and a referring physician or surgeon, whether direct or indirect, have the potential to endanger patient safety. Specifically, kickbacks and self-referrals create the potential for overutilization and substandard patient care when a physician or surgeon refers a case to a neuromonitoring provider based on financial considerations. The ASNM does not condone kickback arrangements irrespective of whether or not, one, patients give informed consent for their healthcare providers to engage in these practices, and two, the kickback arrangement is technically considered legal in any state or jurisdiction. Self-referral arrangements should be structured properly with the advice of counsel and with patient care always foremost. So, look, none of this shit is new, but the attention of the OIG is. Neuromonitoring really wasn't on their radar before. Now it's on the front page of their website. Go and look. And this could get really interesting. Okay, so how does all of this impact you? Well, I guess that depends on who you are. But my highly generalized answer is probably not much, despite all the buzz. This is an advisory opinion, and it doesn't carry any legal weight. But it does open the door for organizations who are suspected of engaging in these practices to be reported to the OIG for investigation. I've asked around uh, to a few people in our profession to pick their brains about this whole OIG thing, and several people are using the same phrase, an attempt to level the playing field. Clearly, someone out there with 
intimate knowledge of these business relationships, submitted this query to the OIG, and I assume that they already knew the answer they were going to get, and were then probably prepared to submit a follow-up complaint about a specific organization or group of organizations. So, this could turn into a game of tattletale whereby different companies in the spirit of competition are essentially turning each other in, or as Napoleon Dynamite said about Uncle Rico, ruining everyone's lives and eating all their steak. Anyway, if this happens, the OIG will probably probe or investigate organizations. There's a really interesting article online about how they do this, starting with employees, affiliates, and potential whistleblowers, all the way through analytics, forensics, subpoenas, and prosecution. Google, my friends, will light your way. Anyway, for most people, there's not much to see here, so I wouldn't get too worried. Certainly, it's possible companies and or surgeons could be investigated. Consequences could range from nothing to fines to exclusion from federal health care programs to jail time. It's possible companies could lose their surgeon clients and surgeons who feel duped into these relationships could sue neuromonitoring companies. Anyone who's been doing this is likely to urgently change their contracts and or corporate structure. I suppose it's possible, at least under extreme circumstances, that some companies could shut down, but I doubt it. Even if that happens, the cases aren't going anywhere, although we're likely to see less monitoring of pain injections, carpal tunnel releases, and maybe even simple lumbar decompressions, none of which, in my personal, humble opinion, ever really need neuromonitoring. But the majority of monitoring cases aren't going anywhere. If one neuromonitoring company closes down, another one moves in to take the business. If anything, companies will have to engage in fair competition, earning their business instead of buying it. So I suppose that's what everyone means when they say this OIG advisory will, quote, level the playing field. That's all I have to say about that. Uh, I do want to close today with a couple of announcements. First, this podcast now has a website, www.stimulatingstuff.com where you can find links to listen and follow the podcast and bonus content on a blog, and you can even listen to the podcast directly on the website. Second, I'm on YouTube, so check it out there. And third, the podcast now has a LinkedIn page and a Facebook group. So please join and follow those pages for updates. I'm not a big fan of either one of those. I know a lot of you aren't either, but it's a good place if you're on social media to find out what's happening with the podcast. And finally, uh, I noticed last week that this podcast is being listened to in over 25 countries. Thank you so much to all my listeners from around the world. I appreciate each and every one of you. I know for those of you overseas, this particular one was probably very U.S. focused, and I apologize for that. But it may actually be of relevance in your country, too. So please continue sending me your comments, critiques, and thought-provoking questions. If you don't agree with me, please share your perspectives. I'm not the final word on anything, particularly not the federal justice system. I would love to hear your thoughts on this OIG thing. Um, Lots of people are talking about it. 
You can send your thoughts to stimulatingstuffpodcast at gmail.com. I always love hearing from you. I'm Rich Vogel, a.k.a. Uncle Rico, and that was Stimulating Stuff. The information and opinions provided in this podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent the opinions of their employers, affiliates, or other third-party individuals or organizations. Sponsorship and other advertising messages do not constitute support of or preference for specific products or services. This podcast is not designed to and does not provide medical advice, diagnosis, opinion, treatment, or services. This podcast is host and all participants, including guests and sponsors, collectively participants, provide general information for entertainment purposes only. The information provided in this podcast is not a substitute for medical or professional opinion, and you should not use the information for that purpose. Participants shall not be held liable or responsible for any advice, course of treatment, diagnosis, or any other information, services, or product you obtain or render. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. Thank you for listening.